Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It is time to go back to the Internet of 1996. There were fewer than 20 million internet users at the start of the year. And for me, I was still dialing up to a local internet service provider called Pacifier. And mostly what I was doing was making, and as we still called it then, surfing web pages. The internet had only emerged as a commercial entity just a few years before, but its potential to be not just a haven for nerds like me, but a crucial mechanism for society was beginning to become apparent. But like, how would that work? How would we go from that dial-up modem sound to actual institutions that this new infrastructure would need to function? Would at the least need a memory, a way of remembering what was at a particular address at a particular time, and of kind of placing things into the permanent record. And that's where Brewster Kale comes in. It was 25 years ago that the Internet Archive was born. Here he is announcing it way back then. The Library of Alexandria was burned. So um, we need to be able to preserve our digital history in multiple places under different regimes. And he joins us now today live to tell us that story. Welcome to the show, Brewster. Thank you. It's great to be here. Also joining us to talk about the development of the Internet are Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Welcome, Margaret. It's good to talk with you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Alexis. And we also have Lisa Nakamura, professor of digital studies at the University of Michigan and co-editor of Race After the Internet. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Brewster, let's start with you. When you first encountered the web in the 90s and even the other technologies that were sort of pre-web but worked a little bit like it that you were working on, when did you realize that this would be an incredibly ephemeral media that would need you know, a lot of archiving? Oh my God! It, the the World Wide Web is a fabulous piece of infrastructure. I mean, it, but it has a major flaw. You can only have materials in one place. Unlike when publishing happened with libraries, where you'd sell books and they'd go to many places, on the web they just live in one server. And so we, when we started archiving the World Wide Web in 1996, we went and said, so how long do these things last? And at that time. The pages either changed or were deleted within 44 days. I mean, it's just incredibly ephemeral. Um, and we started by going and uh, archiving the presidential election websites, the campaign websites of 1996 with the Smithsonian Institution, because we knew those were going to be gone. Wow. And then what were your mental models, like historically for the Internet Archive? Like you were, as you're going back, I know you, you, know, you did work at MIT what were you looking at and saying, we should try and build this? Yes. At, at, 
back in you know early 80s 1980 was like okay what what do we do with this technology we knew that the internet was coming we knew ai was coming we knew um that there is going to be a shift in publishing so what what should we do and the idea of building a library of alexandria for the digital age struck us as just kind of a a, a really wonderful well, life goal, kind of up there with sort of maybe artificial intelligence. Can you go and build universal access to all knowledge? Could you actually do that? And it's been a dream for millennia, but with the internet, we could actually make that come true. Oh, you didn't have to just be, oh, I don't know, within commuting distance of a major university to be able to get access to these materials. You could do it from anywhere. That was the dream that we set out uh, to help build. And in 1980, there were a lot of things missing. Oh, computers, uh, storage, <laughs> um, publishing systems. Um, a so global network of networks. Yeah. The network, yeah. <laughs> we had this ARPANET thing. Uh, and as you pointed out, that those nasty um, modems. Um, and, you know, it, it was all pretty primitive, but we knew where it was going to go. So we wanted to push in that direction and the openness in an open way so that publishing would be in the open so that we could build a library. And by 1996, the World Wide Web was the publishing system that we basically more or less dreamed of. The Memex the, of Vannevar Bush, the Xanadu of Ted Nelson, um, Doug Engelbart's dreams of going and making it so you could electronically annotate everybody else's work. Those were the dreams, but we needed to make it real. And Yes, there's some flaws to the World Wide Web, but by 1996, that's what the what we had going. Publishing was starting to happen. Then it was time to build the library. Yeah. You know, something that's really struck me for really decades about you is that, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley culture really emphasizes like speed, disjuncture, right? And you've oftentimes wanted to build a, a different, you've drawn on a different tradition that's trying to actually build institutions for digital civic life. It, what, what has caused you to go down that road, unlike so many others of your peers who have you know, built companies that have risen and fallen in the space of uh, a year uh, instead of right. an institution that's now celebrating a 25th anniversary. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, you know, capitalism, you know, as, and, and just the, the <laughs> venture capitalist money is just a gasoline you can, you know, throw on a uh, on an ember and it goes explodes. Um, and these things um, can be very energizing, uh, very exciting, disruptive. Um, but they usually don't last. So there's sort of three or five years. And I did a couple of these. So, you know, Thinking Machines, um, uh, Ways Incorporated was bought by AOL. I bought, I built Alexa Internet, which was bought, uh, built, <clears throat> bought by Amazon.com. And, you know, I, I understand how corporations work. Um, and, but we wanted to go and make something that would last. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear that we needed to do this in the open and as a nonprofit. Yeah. That the Internet Archive or the library needed to last. That's its major feature is it's still here. So how do you do that? Well, you make it so that it can't be bought, right? You can't buy uh, a, a nonprofit. Um, also, your mission is quite different. You're here for the long term. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, was it unusual in 1996 <laughs> to go and start a nonprofit and say, yeah, we're going to be around for you know, ages and ages and ages. And people look at you and just, what are you trying yeah, to do? Why would you want to do that? Um, we're talking about the 25th anniversary of the Internet Archive with its founder, Brewster Kale. We also are joined by Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington, and Lisa Nakamura, professor of digital studies at the University of Michigan. And we want to hear from you. I know many of our listeners were early internet users. What do you miss about that early internet? And what do you think the internet of the future should look like? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Margaret Omar, um, I was hoping maybe you could situate the Internet Archive within the broader intellectual history of Silicon Valley, you know, kind of coming in, in through the 1990s uh, and on to today. Yeah. And before I do that, I first have to send a thanks to Brewster, since I have you on the line for on behalf of historians everywhere and students of history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Same. Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll add that. My yeah. Thanks that. Um, I, I think this is really important. I think this goes to your question, Alexis, about the culture of tech and of the internet, internet culture, which is very forward thinking, right? Building the future. It's, it's hard to think, oh, maybe we should conserve the past so that we look, reflect black back on it and understand where we got here. And what we see in, you know, in the in the Wayback Machine is, is, is evidence of a internet industry that has transformed. I mean, back in 1996, uh, it was just, it was a different set of players. The scope was completely different. And it was about, it was really fueled by, I think some of the names you just mentioned, Brewster, you know, Ted, uh, Douglas Engelbart, Ted Nelson, um, and so many others fueled by this optimistic idea that connecting people, giving everyone a platform um, for communication, collaboration, buying and selling things was going to be extraordinarily empowering. And of course it has been, but when you bring everyone online, you bring out the best of humanity and you also bring out everything else. So I think that one of the things where, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling with now is, is, you know, this, this, this is something that was built for a world, an internet world that was much smaller and now it is much vaster and it touches probably every realm of daily life, certainly mm-hmm. in the United States and, and also around the world. I think that's another critical thing. You know, this is a made, Amer- made in America product by and large, um, although Tim Berners-Lee is not American, <laughs> but uh, made in America pro- product and, and made in America companies that now are the dominant players and it's a global, uh, has a global impact. Well, and that's what I was going to say. You know, it's uh, the difference between giving everyone a platform and having basically three platforms that everyone works through. Um, Lisa Nakamura, you two were deeply engaged with the early internet. And in particular, you know, you've been writing about how people express and experience their identities online, which sure seems prescient today. Um, (laughs) And I wonder for you, what do you think culturally has endured from that early internet all the way through to today? I think culturally, for better or worse, there is still a strong value around self-sufficiency and around um, building and innovating. So I think this was, as you say, like in the 90s, you had to make your own websites because there was no one else to make them. Um, And everything that you received when you were surfing around was in some ways a gift, right? Commerce wasn't really a thing in the early 90s. So you saw a lot of passions, you saw a lot of desires to connect, a lot of really, 
utopian and beautiful experiments in being social together across distance. Uh, so I think that spirit that people should create what they themselves want um, has been persistent throughout. I think the problem is that we still have this value, but as um, Margaret was saying, vast numbers of people online who come from cultures or situations or backgrounds where they may not be able to create and instead are kind of stuck with what is here. We're talking about the 25th anniversary of the Internet Archive and the many iterations of the Internet with its founder, Brewster Kahle, also Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at University of Washington and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, and Lisa Nakamura, professor of digital studies at the University of Michigan, co-editor of Race After the Internet. And we want to hear from you. What do you think the future, uh, the Internet of the future should look like? And maybe even what's a part of your Internet history that you'd want to save Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Email, of course, forum at kqed.org. Brewster, are you disappointed with the internet that we have today? I'm so jazzed about the internet we have today. You just, you know, I compare it to when I was growing up. I grew up before the web. And we have an experiment in radical sharing. We, we have people that are finding their voice, finding their community, no matter where they are in the world. We have hundreds of millions of people that are um, sharing in interesting ways. Now, yes, we've got some problems. And the, the Internet are, has always had these sort of new waves of people coming in with different approaches. Um, we saw in email, we saw the, the birth of spam that is largely really killed off email. Um, and I'd say this uh, misinformation of, you know, poison that's being put in by state players, by corporate players, by ideological players is a form of spam. It's, I don't know, if we're trying to build a, a global brain, if we're trying to make the whole world smarter, then these guys are injecting viruses uh, into it. And what do we do about that? Um, and I think we have to respond with, a, with norms, with laws, uh, with technology to try to filter and make a smarter internet. We do have a naive structure, um, which is the, uh, you know, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, um, and we have to become smarter or it will sort of, you know, I don't become a poison, uh, poisoned environment. And uh, we can't let that happen. I, I'm so encouraged by what people have poured in, but I'm discouraged by what some very large institutions are uh, are doing to it. Yeah. Margaret, do you see the sort of nature of information flow on the Internet? That is to say, the fact that a lot is, as Brewster noted, uh, not true, not based in facts and, and kind of been a... Um, a hotbed for a lot of conspiratorial thinking. Do you see that as part of the sort of economic model? That is to say, you know, ad-based virality kind of at the core of what, how editing works on the internet. Do you see it as that or do you see it as something else um, and and needs a a different set of changes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that is, comes in the wake of the the big problem that the that many of the companies or the, the internet culture of the 1990s hadn't fully cracked, which was how to make money on the internet, 
and the way that the the solution um, in the in the 21st century was in Google and Facebook kind of discovered this and monetized this. Well, didn't discover it, but were you know the leading leading edge of this was to take user data and sell ads against it. And that I think is the great you know conundrum, right? We if we go back, if we're getting nostalgic about 1996, 97, 98. Let's remember the cacophony of banner ads and pop up ads and all these efforts to try and get people's eyeballs to pay attention and you know find some way to to make these things make money. I think this is the real challenge, right? This is the the commercial internet is commercial. It's corporate. It's about um, it's about money. And and I think it's also being married with something that runs really deep in Silicon Valley culture, which I think is a secret to its success, which is the, the sort of fast growth, um, sharp elbowed, hyper competitive, um, go big, go quickly, mm-hmm. um, which has its roots not in, you know, well beyond, far beyond this generation of technologies, but goes all the way back to the semiconductor industry. And back in the day in the 60s and <laughs> 70s with these young companies all trying to, you know, get us a, a foothold in this brand new market. And how, how are you successful? You need to be hyper aggressive and grow. And so that growth mentality and the imperative to, to grow and to scale um, is, is something that has now collided with, uh, you know, created things that are so massive mm-hmm. that they're uh, proving impossible to moderate by human or by algorithm. And that's the, you know, that's where we are right now. Yeah. Lisa Nakamura, um, you know, that shift to platforms and that shift to the centralization of so much of the internet. Uh, do you see that also as a as a bad thing or a good thing? I think it's bad to the extent that it consolidates um, poor or no moderation of spaces. Um, considering how many of us are doing everything online now, uh, working, going to school, having social lives, if we try to design parks or schools by committee from people who are working as fast as possible to make the most amount of money, we wouldn't have a very good school or very <laughs> good park. So, you know, what we have is a consequence of, you know, what was just being said that, you know, this was something designed not in, in a coordinated way and not for the social good. It was designed for technological speed and for profit. So it's almost, you know, uh, it's, it's unreasonable to expect it would be anything else in a way. Um, Yet at the same time, I think we have to imagine something else because this isn't tenable. Right. I mean, one of the things I've always noted is there's not a single person at the top of one of these Silicon Valley companies who's actually a specialist in content moderation or or any of those, any of those things. Um, Brewster, uh, I know that you're not a fan of the advertising models, and we're coming up on the end of this particular part of the segment. We can get to it after the break. You know, what, what would you like to see replace some of these advertising models? Well, the advertising model has a nice characteristic that doesn't have paywalls. Gosh, I'm running into paywalls all the time now. With uh, And even your, your meteorologist, just before this segment, he said he saw from some tweet and then he rented the paper from 2019 of the uh, of the scientist that was on Twitter. Rented the paper? I mean, uh-oh. So we have, we have some real problems um, even replacing the ad model. But one model actually is kind of interesting. It's, well, public support. And the Wikipedia, I would say, is a moderated environment that's been successful, started in 2003. The Internet Archive started four years ago with the travesty of some of the American political crap that was going on. Um, We went and put links in and fixed 10 million broken links in Wikipedia. We 
put in links so that you could go from Wikipedia to deeper sources. So let's reinforce Wikipedia. It's a hundred million dollar a year organization. That's cheap. That's less than the San Francisco Public Library is all of Wikipedia. So I think there are well, other We're going to have to leave it right there for right now. We'll keep talking about money after the break. We're talking about the Internet Archive and the Internet with Brewster Kale, Lisa Nakamura, Margaret Omar. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure... The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about 25 years of the Internet and 25 years of the Internet Archive with its founder, Brewster Kale. We're also joined by Lisa Nakamura, professor of digital studies at the University of Michigan and co-editor of Race After the Internet, and Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington and the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. And we want to hear from you. What do you miss about the early Internet? And what do you love about the Internet now? Give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can tell us what you think the future of the internet should be with a comment to forum at kqed.org. Uh, before the break, Brewster, we were talking about money and and how, how to fund uh, uh, this access to knowledge. And you're saying that Wikipedia has a $100 million budget um, one thing that blows my mind is the Internet Archive. It's a twenty million dollar budget. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So basically, just, Alameda Public Library, like the city of Alameda. Yes. So we it's we're uh, we're tiny. Um, but if you take the library system as a whole, it's about twelve billion dollar a year industry. And I, th- I think we have plenty of money there. We're just not spending it well. So what libraries do is they buy things, preserve them, and lend them. And so about three or four billion dollars a year go from the library system to publishers products. Right now they're licensed in this, e- these ebooks are licensed and it's a dreadful and horrible system. You get rental, it's, it's a problem. But imagine a, you know, a different future where you actually have uh, libraries buying, preserving and lending electronic materials. We'd have three or four billion dollars. That's not enough to, serve, to make everything work, but that's 20% of the trade uh, publishing industry. It's a lot. Um, it's So we have a mechanisms. We have the money to do it. We're just not spending it right. Yes, we have advertising that's causing problems. We've got paywalls that are making it so that the truth is paywalled and the lies are free. Um, if it's you know there with for free, maybe it's being promoted by somebody. And is that the right way to raise a generation? If we don't put the best that we have to offer within reach of the next generation, we're going to get the generation we deserve. So I think we have to solve this. Let's do some more experiments. But I think we're going to have to see some large corporations take uh, some different approaches. Yeah, We've uh, got John from Santa Clara, a librarian himself. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, Thank you. I uh, graduated in 96 and started teaching online research in 97. I then worked at all those Santa Clara County uh, junior colleges, and I have taught for the master's in library science program at San Jose State. 
I loved the archive when it came out, and I still do. But I find it very difficult to get people to use it. Uh, early studies that showed that Wikipedia was having a greater degree of accuracy uh, than the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, I use that as a basis when I'm teaching not just searching of commercial databases, but I'm teaching searching of the web uh, as an example of where you can great, get great information. I have also taught people about using the archive. For me, the big problem with the archive, you may only have a $20, $40 million budget, but I think you could do the same thing that Jimmy Wales has done in, made, in making Wikipedia one of the most mm. used sites in the world. Uh, yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that's it's, an, it's a really interesting point, Bruce, that I'd like to put to you. Yeah, I mean, one right. reason why... Internet companies have tended to dominate as they can make extremely usable, extremely accessible products that appeal. They can test a million different variations to find the very easiest way to get people to do something. So how does a, uh, an institution that's so crucial but has the budget of the Alameda City Public Library uh, compete in that realm? We started by archiving. Right. So we just started by building the, the web collection and it was five years um, before we even put the Wayback Machine out. Then we started collecting television and we now digitize about a million books a year. And if you try to wait, make your way through this, it is a challenge. Archive.org is not that easy. OpenLibrary.org actually is, is easier. That's also another website we do. We want to see lots of different portals, if you will, on the same information, lots of even different organizations building user interfaces. So there's, um, but it's, it is clunky. Actually, one of the best interfaces is Wikipedia. We've tried to turn all the references blue. So at the bottom of the pages that there's some place you can go. And the number one place that people go from Wikipedia is the Internet Archive. And so in some sense, that was a win that we have some way in, but we're going to need lots of different ways in that catch where, where people are. They're not going to go to the library anymore. We have to go and make it so that if they're looking for a fact check on something, okay, let's go look, look at that. If you hit a 404 document not found in your browser, it should go immediately to the Wayback Machine. Hmm. It does if you use an, an extension or you use the Brave browser, but it's not in Chrome or Firefox. Why not? So I think we need to upgrade the internet overall because we're all digital learners now we're all homeschoolers i also love the way that you just think about integrating as as infrastructure not as a product like you're just like no we are a piece of infrastructure uh and we have a few memories of the early internet which i want to share and then lisa i have a question to direct to you um some of these memories are great though judd in san francisco way back when minitel a french tech company with its proprietary uh. minitel computer with screen tried to enter the u.s market I bought one. Speed was measured in bods. 1,200 baud was fast upload speed. Minitel had no clear understanding that the World Wide Web tsunami was on the horizon. Uh, Michael tweets, don't forget Deja.com. Usenet news postings had been ephemeral, lasting a few days on local servers at most before Deja News began archiving them in 1995. Shannon writes, 
I miss the Xerox Star workstation and the Mesa development environment. At Park and OSD in the 80s, we had the ARPANET. We also had powerful workstations. Computers were the first distributed systems networks. We could email or send a fax to our colleagues in Japan or London. We could create graphics, drawings, and documents in different languages quickly and easily. We could also program and compile within minutes, create applications easily, and their corresponding design picture to denote them. Uh, love all those early memories. And we also have people who want to talk about some of the pitfalls. And Lisa, this is uh, going to you. The Internet gives us unlimited access to pursue our interests to a degree never before available. It's incredible, exciting, and unfortunately highly addictive. But every moment you spend on the Internet pursuing your interests, you're siloing yourself, not interacting with others, not debating with people different than you, not learning about the diversity and nuance of the complicated society we all live in. And, you know, as someone who has studied race, identity, and kind of the diverse cultures of the internet for a lot of years. Do you see that as the primary problem? Is it is it that we're kind of filter bubbling ourselves, siloing ourselves? No, I don't think that's the case. I think people were doing that anyway by living in segregated neighborhoods or in gated communities or by sending their kids to certain kinds of schools or even by homeschooling. Um, I think what the internet has done is made it much lower cost to be uh extreme online, hmm. uh, let's say. So I think, um, you know, we live in a culture where it's still seen as somewhat rude and uncomfortable to even talk about race or sexism or, you know, things that are seen as divisive. And so, you know, people are curious about that. They, they want to learn and they want to have a conversation. So it's kind of unfortunate that Xbox Live is where people are learning about racism mm-hmm. and what they can say and what they can't say, but that's what's happened. And it's, I think, largely because we have dropped the ball around educating um, or even having talking talks about that. So I think, you know, instead of, you know, preventing those talks from happening, it's actually the place where they are happening because people do not want to engage with it um, in their everyday life. Margaret Omar, do you think that the internet over the last 25 years could have developed really differently? Like, do we, do you see it as something that, you know, fundamental structural forces, Silicon Valley money, plus, you know, uh, the availability of screens of all different types, plus the existing culture of, of Silicon Valley and the technology industry, that we were just going to kind of get to this place? Or do you see that there were kind of key pivot points where we could have gone in a different direction but did not? Yeah. Oh, Alexis, historians don't like counterfactuals. No, I know. That's why I'm asking you. That's why you <laughs> But yeah. But you no, know, I think it's a, a very interesting question. It's less pivot points. I think it's more just understanding the internet as the product of of American culture. Um, and particularly thinking about it as the product of the 90s and a broader political landscape. Um, you know, we think about, you know, the Bay Area is a pretty deep blue place in its politics. Um, the the industry itself is sort of kind of identifies and is identified as kind of a left-leaning, not entirely, but generally. But actually, so much of the growth of the industry has been facilitated by policies that were deregulating, cutting taxes, creating kind of a big runway for business to grow large. And I think that's really important in understanding kind of how the internet grew the way it did. Let's go back to 1996, the the, the year that birthed the Internet Archive was also the year of the Telecommunications Reform Act that contained the 
Communications Decency Act and of course, Section 230. Um, but the whole conversation about regulating the internet, you know, let's keep in mind, you know, the inspiration for that for Section 230 was, you know, CompuServe, like that's how far back we're going. <laughs> it was a very, very different um, a different landscape as we've been discussing, but also there was, I think where the inflection points were, were, you know, there was such political support on both sides of the aisle, you know, Al Gore and Newt Gingrich were both early adopters and very enthusiastic about the industry and its potential. And, um, you know, it was, it was, there was just that political support, the, you know, the, the nature of, you know, the money flowing through the financial system at the late, later part of the 1990s, making stock investing boom and a lot of money looking for a home like, like mm -hmm. now, just all of this, all of this came together to create an industry and, and, and allow it to grow very, very large. And let's, you know, even going back 10 years ago, we were having very different conversations about the potential of Silicon Valley companies or technology companies and social media in particular. Barack Obama was having a town hall meeting at Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg. And the biggest pre-game pre conversation was, what are they going to wear? Is Mark going to wear a suit or is, right. is Obama going to wear a hoodie? You know, it was a very, very Well, and there was time. a total revolving door between Silicon Valley into the Obama administration as well. Absolutely. And this real, this sort of sense that Silicon Valley had so much to teach government and politics and and that, that it should be allowed to, you know, do what it wanted to lead and to innovate. You know, Brister, I, I really, you know, we played a clip of you talking at the beginning um, saying, you know, we need to be able to preserve this digital mm -hmm. history, you know, through different regimes. Um, and it almost kind of positioned you and the Internet Archive and I, I would say the, the broader Internet, you know, kind of outside the nation state construct, like out, certainly outside of the United States and in, in, in that way. Has your politics evolved on this point over the years about the sort of relationship between the sort of digital world and our previously existing kind of civic and, and political institutions? Um, I maybe it's just me, but I, I I've been saying now the same thing for 25 years. So either I'm onto something or I'm stuck, <laughs> or maybe both. Um, but we're we're trying to build, and it's become much more urgent um, to make sure that we have. Uh, copies in other locales. So the Internet Archive is a partial copy in uh, Amsterdam and a partial copy in Alexandria, Egypt, really, um, and starting to work on Internet Archive Canada. Um, but they have to be done, and we need a network of libraries. The answer of one is almost always the wrong answer. So we need a, a whole network of, of libraries to be able to make this um, materials last. It's 600 billion web pages, but it's also now 5 million books in the digital library. Um, we can't just allow that to be in one uh, place to be able to have an infrastructure for our culture. So all of that is, is happening. It's slow. Um, the library system is not adapting very quickly. The publishing industry is doing everything it can to dig its heels in. Um, so, and then we have you know, consolidation with the Facebooks and Twitters. So we have, we've always had challenges, but isn't that kind of what makes it fun? Um, that we, that, <laughs> That's the most Brewster Kale thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's at least not boring, right? We, we, for the next 25 years, we're going to have our own challenges to try to yeah. figure out. And it's going to be another generation that goes and says, what's the internet they want? Yeah. How do they you build know, it? Brewster, one of the challenges, uh, Michelle tweets, uh, you know, 
She's saying, today's interview ignores the fact that the Internet Archive illegally scanned distributed thousands of copyrighted books, doing damage to authors who spent years on a book, only to have it distributed for free without permission by the Internet Archive. What, what's your response when um, authors or people representing authors say that about the, what the Internet Archive has done? I, I guess they don't remember what a library is. Uh, what a library is is, is an organization that buys things, preserves them, and lends them one reader at a time. And that's what the Internet Archive has been doing with hundreds of libraries for the last 10 years. Um, and that, uh, yes, there's uh, four very large corporate publishers that want to stop the idea of lending. It's the first time there's been a lawsuit uh, filed by publishers to try to stop lending of books. This is um, actually quite unsettling. Because um, it's it was evolving for ten years. It's been doing fine. Boston Public Library, hundreds of libraries have been uh, lending uh, digitized mm-hmm. books. So I I think it's a, a lot of posturing and a lot of selective um, picking of of uh, quote facts. Uh, Want to add in one last caller, Daniel from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. Hey, um, thanks for two, calling. Thank you. Two things that have been ringing in my head. One is Mark Zuckerberg never told anybody about metadata, which is attached to every picture that you take and then post on the Internet. Unless you remove that metadata, people know exactly where you took that picture, which could be your bedroom. I used to work on film and TV, and one of my jobs was protecting celebrities, so I alerted one of them to that. And their exact quote was, eek, had no idea. And I still meet people to this day have no idea. Okay, the other thing is Zuckerberg. That's a whole can of worms, but his vision is an Orwellian nightmare, like the movie Ready Ready Player One. The metaverse. (laughs) The metaverse, okay? And with that that megalomaniac mentality, who I think could be sociopathic, I don't know. I'm not a medical (laughs) professional, but uh, his choices have really revealed a lack of character, and there's nobody on the board that can check him power-wise. He is the... The um, where the buck stops with everything Facebook, and I've heard the stories where he was warned about this and that, and said I'm not interested, and so there was nobody to do anything but him. Well, thank you for that, Daniel. I, I want to ask Lisa Nakamura. I'm really curious what you think about the return of these visions of the metaverse from you know <laughs> uh, the past. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in the '90s, a lot of stuff happened. Um, we had the declaration of cyberspace from John Perry Barlow about how the internet was going to fix all of our problems, and we had a lot of really kind of socially influential books. And one of them was Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, which talked about the metaverse as kind of a combination of Zoom and kind of an augmented reality. Thing. Doesn't that sound so great? <laughs> it does. Oh, we love it. We're so, we're so not tired of it. Um, so seeing it come back in this way um, is so interesting because it's a very old term. And I think people are using it in a very, very broad way um, to signify that thing we wish the Internet had become, you know, but didn't, meaning really, really immersive and very embodied and very immediate and less lonely than the actual reality of typing by yourself. Um, so I think it's coming back to fill that maybe post-COVID need for some contact, mm. but also fear of humans at the same time. Yeah. We've been talking about the last 25 years of the Internet and the Internet Archive with Lisa Nakamura, professor of digital studies at the University of Michigan and co-editor of Race After the Internet. Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. 
And of course, the founder of the Internet Archive, Brewster Kale. And I just want to say, also, as a book writer, amateur historian, it is just such an incredible resource. And thanks so much for trying to actually build digital civic life. Thanks, Brewster. Thank you very much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Leslie McClurk. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.